Today on Not Cleared, we have a news roundtable with Adam Savitt and Mike Waller where we talk about Secretary of State Antony Blinken's recent testimony in front of the House Foreign Affairs Committee talking about the U.S. withdrawal from Afghanistan. We also touch on the Biden administration recently ordering essentially an ideological purge of U.S. military academies and what that's going to mean for our future service members. We also touch on the Biden administration's recent COVID vaccine mandate for companies with over 100 employees. And we finish up with a discussion on a recent defense transfer deal between Japan and Vietnam as a result of China's increased military activity. On Monday, Secretary of State Blinken was testifying before the House Foreign Affairs Committee on the U.S. withdrawal from Afghanistan. And the quote that's making the rounds on Twitter and other social medias is that he said, we made the right decision to withdraw, which the way I read that personally is you can say whether the decision to withdraw was correct or not, but did they implement it in the right way and do it in the right way by withdrawing that the way they did? So, um, And he was getting grilled by various members of Congress yesterday, and he was basically just doubling down and saying that, and basically defending their decision to withdraw from Afghanistan in the way that they did. So, Well, he said that if we didn't withdraw in August, we would be stuck there for another 5, 10, 20 years, which makes absolutely no sense. Yeah, it was a false deadline that was forced, and it was so rigid that there could be no planning for contingencies or unseen circumstances. But why is that? Does anyone know? No, it's never been explained. It it was giving the Taliban advance notice of the exact hour that we would leave. So it gave them and their backers all the time they needed to plan months in advance. Do you think that the Taliban Taliban just said, you have to be out by this date? And we said, okay. Well, it looks like more evidence is surfacing that the Taliban is telling us what to do, and that's pretty much okay with us, as opposed to us saying, we're leaving, you're going to do what you do when you come in, but... If you mess with our people, we'll kill you. Right. We're not doing that. So really, they took over. They started dictating, though, after we showed our weakness, right? That, that's when they, because before that, they were sort of in the hills or waiting for a cue. Uh, b- before that, Trump uh, did have the requisite deterrence to, to keep them at bay. And they were, you know, Biden got elected. They probably thought, okay, he's probably a little softer. And then with they inched ahead and then pushed it as far as they could. And, you know, until the point where at the climax, they literally were, physically occupying most of Kabul and dictating uh, the logistics as well. Well, we've been negotiating with them for 10 years or maybe since 2013, I think. So Trump did as well, but it seems sure, but like... Predicated, it was a different context because Trump right. had credible uh, deterrence. And that was another thing that he brought up was he continually blamed the Trump administration for the whole debacle, which... Right. You can say what you want, that the Trump administration was talking with the Taliban before, but the Biden administration handled this completely differently than Trump would have. Also, that's seven or eight months to develop their own plan. It's not like they were sitting there and had to take verbatim what, you know, the, the terms change when the, when the administration. And, and they've gotten rid of countless other treaties or agreements that the Trump administration had before, most notably the Iran nuclear deal. But they also, the Trump administration set it up so it was results-based, so certain threshold thresholds had to be met before we would withdraw i don't know how how effective that is but but it's not 
But regardless what Biden of the, did was not the deal that Trump No, negotiated. the Trump administration had a plan. Yeah. Biden chose to dump that plan. So they can't blame Trump for leaving them behind without a plan. Right. Instead, they come in with sort of no plan at all except to get out of Dodge by by 11.59 p.m. on August 31st. And that gave the Taliban the exact minute to know how they could move in. And then they started rushing our bases, taking them over. We surrendered Bagram without even needing to. And that was the, the key strategic site in the entire country. So we, the Biden administration gave the Taliban and its foreign state sponsors all the time they needed. But why? And it's never been explained. Obviously, you get civilians out before you get military out. And that's they did the opposite, which means we had to send more troops in Afghanistan than have probably been there in the last five years to get, you know, after they screwed it up. But there's no ex- no one has ever clarified who was responsible for that decision and why. And despite our allies begging us to extend the deadline that Biden arbitrarily set, unless it was dictated to him by someone else, it just makes no sense. I think it's just a misguided and twisted idea of optics, because the same thing you saw with where he was uh, uh, pressuring the, the Afghan president to say that the Taliban weren't conquering, you know, just to put off the uh, image of a little more um, stability. In the same way, perhaps he didn't want to put across the idea that we are withdrawing. You know, the what he was putting forward, you know, we made that famous statement that we're not going to have the helicopters coming off the roofs. Maybe he was trying to uh, project the image that we are not withdrawing, really. This government will continue. Our citizens can continue here, you know, and live here in safety, even though he knew and apparently all the generals and other analysts were telling him, no, that's not what's happening. So it was like two, you know, there was, I think optics and reality might have crossed uh, pads there and, and they were weirdly like in the headlights right like and also his defense secretary Lloyd Austin who was the as a four star commanded the withdrawal from Iraq which was like it or not how it was done it was orderly it was successful in that it did achieve its intended objective Austin uh, is a is a very stubborn guy who doesn't take advice very well he thought he could simply repeat the same thing in Afghanistan so when you have a bad policy under the president and you have a closed-minded defense secretary who won't listen to people around him uh, ordering these this type of withdrawal then you have a complete disaster but was it a horse and cart situation with as morgan says with the military versus a civilian was it or was it a weird notion that we just would be secure more overall, or the civilians would be more secure, and so it wasn't needed yet. What was, how could it is? It's stunning just to, I mean, yeah. If you like, they are saying now we have no ability to get people out because we have no troops on the ground, right? So, just basic common sense, right? You have to get civilians out before you get the military out, otherwise, what are you going to do besides whatever they're saying now with negotiating through the State Department or whatever? But that doesn't. It's completely illogical. This may reflect simply the the lack, as everyone is, as as anyone who is honest points out, the lack of cognitive ability of of President Biden, and the fact you need someone at the top making the executive decisions, you know, weighing everyone's input, and then making that decision. Maybe this is evidence that that literally is not happening. There's just all these ideas flying around. They try to like sort of divine what he's saying, or a few people try to. Um, make good on their uh, particular perspective and th- there's no uh, ultimate buck stops here um, 
moment. Yeah, it just seems like they had their mind set on whatever they were going to do and nothing was going to change their mind. And you saw that specifically um, with, you know, U.S. citizens that were trying to get out and press secretaries and everyone else was saying, no, we're doing everything that we can. They kind of just repeated the same line over and over again, despite what was actually happening on the ground there. And it does. It's interesting. I thought the Biden call with um, President Ghani was so revealing because it's like they really do think it is just a matter of optics. Like they're saying now it was the biggest airlift in history because we were just taking whoever showed up. Doesn't mean that it was the people that actually deserved to, to get out or needed to get out. But it does seem like because they're ignoring it where even if this was a disaster, they're not even acknowledging that fact. He's tripling down on it. Where in the military are the people that resigned over this? And you also, could, there level. were what, two so far? Right. I mean, how, and the other thing is too, everyone's leaking to the press, the intelligence community, the State Department saying, no, 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 we said, we told Biden not to. So they're all trying to cover, no one wants the blame. But then why didn't anybody resign? And why haven't they fired anyone, even just as a sacrificial lamb? They used to do that with the Obama administration. So are they this disconnected that they think it's, do they honestly believe that that was a success? Because they're so immune, they have not experienced criticism in the way that every other president has. Well, maybe Obama didn't either, but, or are they just ignoring it? I don't know which is worse. Well, they're desperate to keep the president off camera saying things off the cuff. So they shut off the microphone at certain points when he's in front of live audiences. We all saw the live feed from that one solemn event that they had where he's shouting somebody out with his mask off so right. he's, he's they, they want to keep him quiet and keep him from answering too many questions so obviously the people around him know he's not all there but there's a bigger problem in that the military itself is is rotten at the top in the officer corps and i think it's far more important for the biden people to keep the woke generals looking like successes so that they can impose a much larger politicized transformation of the military than it is to be successful in Afghanistan. I mean, but it has it already been transformed because there are no resignations. As long as there are no resignations, the transformation can continue. But once you get rid of, say, General Milley or some other senior officer to to. Uh, uh, they're the leaders of this woke revolution going on in the military. They're the ones who are who are the the patrons of it, and they're protecting the other officers beneath, and they're selecting the officers underneath them, going down a couple tiers through the senior officer corps for the next leadership. So this is far more important to revolutionize the military and to purge the military of its of its solid, really devoted professionals. It's another very important thing that they want to do. So this is all part of what Lenin called the worse, the better. Just create a bad situation and make it worse and flush out all the people you don't want. The brown nosers will stay regardless. But I'm saying, isn't it more indicative that the military is already significantly rotted at the top because no one is protesting over this? No, they want to get on their corporate boards and they want to get their you know, $170,000 a year pensions and everything else. I think a good example would be to take the four-star generals, demote them to private, and then force them out of the military at the rank of private. They can no longer be called general anymore. Mm -hmm. They lose their pension, and they lose their opportunities to sit on corporate boards as a private. 
So that would set a couple of great examples, but of course there's no leadership for that. At the risk of getting a little off Afghanistan, but this seems to be a core issue. If and when another uh, Republican president comes in, what action could they take to reverse that? Or is it just the momentum is there? Uh, you know, Can this be turned around? We've heard a lot of stories over the years of people that served in Afghanistan, and again, the same thing. The further up the chain, they would come for a photo op, but they didn't have any experience on the ground, didn't know what they were talking about. If they were deployed, they were on the base, never really seeing any combat. If I, if I were president, I would fire all the leadership except for the mid-level, so maybe like major. I mean, that's... I don't know. Is that in the army too? Is that just Marines? That's army also. But, but you know, the, the, a, a wide scale purge ideological and other, you know, is, is underway now. And it has to do with the media environment that they're not getting any significant blowback, but even, you know, unfortunately the media does impose some parameters with just their, to some degree success with propaganda. So should, could a Republican get away with doing something which in a, essentially would be a purge of sorts, right? Yeah, and you can have, the Senate has to confirm the promotions of all military officers. Usually it's done on a big slate and they're all sort of automatically confirmed by the Senate. But senators have the right to put holds on the promotions of certain officers mm -hmm. if they have the support of their majority leader. And this is not what's happening. There are some senators who would put holds on the promotion of certain generals. Once you do that, you're going to have the generals fighting among themselves to tell Millie and the others, get off your butt, do the right thing, get out of the way. Our futures are at stake. So if they won't do it for the country, they'll do it for their, their own futures. But even just from a from a larger evaluation, job performance evaluation, they have not won a war since World War II. As much as we honor, I think the right has sort of venerated the military rightly so for the service and sacrifice but the people at the top have been rotten for a really long time i don't know if the winning the war is the, is the key quote unquote i think that just could just as well be a consequence of the times and politics and the way a, a nation state work right you're not going to be able to conquer and uh you know conquer another nation state and replace the government the way we did with germany or japan um right the parameters have changed i guess that's true because we could have won. It was more political decisions in Afghanistan and Iraq that changed it. But my point is that they're not that good at their job, right? Well, they're good at the job of quickly conquering a country as far as taking the cities and, uh, right, controlling it from the top down. It's a matter of uh, a successful, I guess, successor government installed. And that's a whole, that's the political echelon. Sure. I mean, we won the war in Afghanistan in right. 2001, 2002. We accomplished the military objectives of ousting the Taliban and hunting down the terrorists. It's just we don't know how to keep these victories. Yeah, but we didn't hunt them down. We let them run away to Pakistan. That was sort of the shift, right? In 2001, where Bush decided to let them go. Well, see, in Washington, we have to pretend that Pakistan is an ally, not an enemy. Yeah, because they have nuclear weapons, so that it's, you know. It seems like they had a little less free reign, at least to project internationally, when in that tribal area of Pakistan, as opposed to sovereignty in Afghanistan. I mean, I agree. It's uh, not Yeah, they were hiding ideal. in caves, but right. that no, I agree. seems it's, to be I mean, the, they weren't the destroyed. shift. No, yeah. they weren't. Instead of saying we're going to hunt them down literally, it was, well, what do we do? But, I mean, it just, the generals, it's much more of a political job, right, than it is about being effective because to move ahead in the military, you have to be, I mean, is that, I don't know, Mike, I feel like you would know more than I would. Yeah, really, if you, if, if you, uh, 
once once you see colonels with a full bird insignia on their shoulders, you have to start wondering what do they do to become colonels? Were they really great at what they did or were they brown nosers? Uh, most of the time in my experience, they're brown nosers. Some of the best yeah. guys don't make it to colonel. And some of the best colonels don't make it to general. And it's it's because of you have to kiss your way up in many in many ways. It's unfair to the generals who got there on their own merits because there are plenty of those. But remember, military rank is also called pay grade. Right. Pay grade is a bureaucratic term in the civilian sector in the in the GS right civil service and in the foreign service equivalent. So, when the military views the leaders view themselves as having a pay grade as opposed to a rank, you get a different mentality about it. They're no longer a general they're just a, a gs-15 or a ses level bureaucrat who wears a uniform sadly i mean we have we have uh, about as many admirals in the navy as we have ships it's wow. it's really crazy so that's just a pay grade you have a general officer who's in charge of dentistry for the military so which you need to have but that doesn't mean he's a commander we should have some other type of rank or it should be done by a when civilian. did that change I don't know precisely when it changed because you do need a general officer who commands a medical corps. But when you have so many generals in the mix and then you have so much pressure to be politically correct within the military, then you've lost the mission. Yeah, like the over bureaucratization. That's that's interesting. And um, but I think the 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 fact of upper you know high ranking military officials being political, I think, is by nature. Or you know, or if you look at history, the most obvious example being General General MacArthur, right? Uh, in Korea, was looking at more than tactical issues. He was making political statements about what what we should do to China and all these things. And and that was and that was bad. And then he got. Uh, can for that but um, even though he was right it was still well, not necessarily proper it's not his space so but but uh, but now there so it's i think it's always been political to one degree or another but now what is the politics now the politics now is the woke politics that's the problem the nature of the politics because if they're if if the high-ranking people are, are competing to be pro-american and anti-soviet and you know then that was right. great you know but also general MacArthur was actually deployed with troops right and on the front lines during World War II, at least. Right? I don't know about front lines, but yeah, I mean, he was deployed. He yeah, was I mean, there and yeah. experienced actual combat where sure. most of the generals now, I guess some of them have, but for the most part, they're not, they achieve this rank and then they get to go on boards and make a lot of money and it's a very lucrative position. They write a biography and have their mistress join them in, Af in was it Iraq or Afghanistan with Petraeus? Uh, I think it was a couple of places. Yeah. Right. Um, that was not a thing that was available to MacArthur and Eisenhower. Well, it, it was actually. But yeah. were they on <laughs> were they on boards and was there the Oh no, you didn't have revolving that. door of it where you're going to be taken care of for the rest of your life because you have that. This is what Eisenhower was, was warning us right. about that was in the process of happening, but we were not a world power really until World War Two. So it was it was all new in the nineteen fifties. So Eisenhower warned us, um, we didn't listen right? as a society, Democrat or Republican. Well, um, we were going to do this later, but we could just do it now. So the last week, the Biden administration fired. So there are three military academies involved, the U.S. Military Academy at West Point, the Naval Academy at Annapolis, and the Air Force Academy in Colorado Springs. And they're all overseen by bipartisan Board of Advisors 
which is congressman, former military, etc. And those jobs are presidential appointments approved by Congress for three-year terms. And in January, um, Secretary of Defense Lloyd Austin suspended all of the boards and 39 other DOD boards, um, saying that they all needed to be reviewed to see if we even want to have them anymore. And that was supposed to, um, they were supposed to release reports about these boards at the end of April. No report has ever been finished, but in just last week, the Biden administration fired all of the members. Well, not all of the members, just the ones that what Jen Psaki said, quote, um, well, she said the criteria is whether, quote, you are aligned with the values of this administration. So anyone appointed by Trump was fired. This is unprecedented, even though these are presidential terms. Um, this is not something that usually happens. So on one hand, we saw the problem with the Trump administration when the unelected bureaucrats felt that they had to enact their own policy versus what the only elected official in the executive branch wanted, right? Um, So you can see how it's important to have a staff that wants what the president wants. But in this case, how how dangerous is it, especially in the military, to have people only aligned with the administration values because you want people to be able to push back on your arguments, right? Right. Yeah, these these policies for these boards were established under Democratic Congresses. Mm. So they they understood the need for bipartisan supervision of our military training and education programs to keep the military non-political, to keep it as checks and balances. So with a three-year staggered terms, you would have presidents appointing who they wished to, but for a one-term president, it would be staggered. If you're a two-term president, then you can stuff the boards, but then it changes as soon as that president is gone. Uh, never in history of, of having these boards governing our military academies has it been politicized like this. So Lloyd Austin is brought in, and he brings in bureaucrats to, to impose this politicization of the military, which has really been going on. This is really Obama's fourth term in terms of DOD because Trump simply wasn't there. He didn't appoint any of the right people at the Pentagon to fix this. So this is this is Obama's fourth term that's going in now, and it's their chance to finally drive the nail fully through. So that means purging the West Point Board and the Naval Academy and the Air Force Academy, like you just said. Uh, this is part of their agenda to fundamentally transform America. Can you explain what Obama did in his two terms as president um, to the military that changed it significantly? Well, first, remember, Obama had no defense or foreign policy experience, so he picked a running mate who did. And that was Senator Joe Biden, who had been considered the dean of foreign policy in the Senate. Where did that come from? Because <laughs> he's never been the sharpest tool in the shed, to put it nicely. Right. And as Bob Gates infamously said, he's been wrong on every foreign policy issue. Right. In the last 50 years. Right. A hundred years, really, since he's been around for the last... Almost a hundred years. Yeah. I was in the third grade when he was first elected to public office. I turned 60 this year. He is so old, anyway. Yeah. <laughs> but, I so, mean, it's not even that. It's that he has, in, throughout his entire career, he's pretty much been on the wrong side of every issue. Yeah. yeah. We have the Russian gangster state with Vladimir Putin in charge because of Joe Biden pushing aid in to prop up the old KGB and the and the, and the mafia and the oligarchs to 
undermine the gains we almost had in the early 1990s, and we did have, and to put in the install the system. He cheered when Putin took power. He said, "Finally, we have a stable hand running running the show in Russia." He uh, supported his entire political career to strengthen communist China. He was one of the senators, one of a small number of senators who voted to cut off our South Vietnamese allies when they were fighting without our help and result in the collapse of South Vietnam, which brought that image of the helicopters coming off the U.S. Embassy in Saigon. That was Joe Biden's vote that made that happen. So he's got a whole track record of nothing but disaster his entire life in the U.S. Senate. So then why was he seen as the foreign policy guy in the Senate? Because the establishment loved him. He, Why he 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 the, he, uh, the Davos uh, World Economic Forum, the globalist uh, people everywhere around the world, the uh, the United Nations has been a huge unquestioning backer of the United Nations and everything it's done of surrendering U.S. sovereignty to the United Nations in many ways. Uh, he's made a lot of people's careers through patronage, through using his position as a senior foreign relations committee member to force through. Uh, political appointments, ambassadorships, grants, line items in spending to create, you know, the, the U.S. Institute of Peace, which was a Reagan institution that Biden and his friends took over by virtue of power of the purse and really Republican inattention. So he's part of the whole establishment uh, from Arm and Hammer working with the Soviets to the Communist Chinese to the uh, Iranian regime and jihadists worldwide. Biden's been there to help them. So he has an amen corner in the media and the big prestigious so-called think tanks and the banking sector and, you know, you name where it is, Biden's got support. So the Soviets would give him unusual access. So when the U.S. ambassador, if the Soviets didn't like an American ambassador or an American president who the ambassador represented, uh, the Soviets would let Joe Biden come in and save the day. So that inflated Biden's ego, his prestige, he became known as one of the go-to people on this matter, whether it's in the in Moscow or in certain other parts of the world. So other powers learned to play him, and he was fine with it. And then the people he surrounded himself drew prestige from that and power and influence from that, and they became uh, embedded throughout the establishment. And, of course, Biden worked well with a lot of Republicans, like uh, like a lot of the Bush people, McCain. a lot of the McCain people. They were, they were hand-in-glove working together on you know, three-fourths of the issues. So back to the military, how, first of all, why why is the military an important institution to transform? Uh, well, I, one angle is it's just a massive uh, 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 well of employees, basically, of the federal, federal government, millions of people that you can have control over and, and uh, enact new social policies through. Uh, for regarding uh, women's roles, um, gay uh, questions and you know all sorts of there's all sorts of ways to experiment uh, with that huge population that's one angle and there's the, the military force. contracting industry whether mm-hmm. it's building strategic bombers or running sanitation services for the military there's this giant multi you know mm-hmm. huge multi-billion dollar um, uh, contracting industry and if you look at their political giving they give mostly to democrats if you look at their boards of directors, which used to be fairly conservative, middle of the road to conservative, now they're overwhelmingly liberal with the people that they have on there. So so this has become a patronage machine, just like the Department of Labor and other elements of the U.S. government doling out cash for union jobs 
to support political bases. The same is true with the military contracting industry. So speak more to the, so this board of advisors at all these colleges, they were purged. What I guess would be immediate effects of that other than just getting more Biden people appointed to those positions? Is it, are they just trying to get more people so they have more power or are they actually trying to transform like the curriculums and what these college guys and girls are learning? Right. They'll transfer the faculty, um, change the faculty and change the curriculum and therefore change the worldviews, belief systems, and the knowledge of all our cadets and midshipmen who are going to become our next generations of officers. And they're just allowed to do this because they feel like, or do they have to give, basically do they have to give any rationale for doing this, or does it happen frequently when a Republican comes in after a Democrat and vice versa? This has never happened, and they it's legal. Like, they have the authority to do it, but it is unprecedented, and technically you would normally get so like hr mcmaster general hr mcmaster was one of the people that was fired um normally they would give an ex- a reason as to why the person's not qualified but they literally jen Psaki literally said it's just if you're aligned with the values of this administration or not um but it's also alarming considering okay they're shaping the curriculum and the worldview and what has um was general milley testifying about his favorite book was what is it um oh by that lunatic which, yeah, Robin D'Angelo. Yeah. Did he specifically was it White say Fragility that? or White was fragility, it um, yeah. Ibram X. Kendi anti racism? Didn't he mention I, those books specifically? Or he said I, I'm No, he wants to explore white yeah. rage. he said those books specifically? I'm sure was he, it, he someone might have. did. Someone I think mentioned the, the those Kendi books one. specifically. Yeah. All right. And and this is when you have a a group of people who don't believe that America's worth defending, you have a military officers, like like all government officials must take an oath to uphold the, and defend the Constitution against all enemies, foreign and domestic. So you've got a two-pronged thing. First, you have a worldview that does not believe in the American constitutional order, and they believe that the Constitution's a living document that can be changed according to political whim. You have that on one side. Second, you have what Nancy Pelosi and Hillary Clinton started making a big deal of, domestic enemies. They did this, started this uh, actually on Hillary's campaign in 2016 the idea of domestic enemies and subversion i mean her talking about this really you know so now they're looking at the military and the fbi and homeland security and the whole bureaucracy as a way to hunt down domestic enemies which they're defining defining as basically political opposition it's people like us yeah not terrorists no and then defining certain things as terrorism that are not terrorism. It's just a different point of view or a strongly held point of view, but now they want to throw the terrorism brush at everything. Imagine now training all of these naval midshipmen and military cadets to view their proper role in the military this way because they're being taught this by PhDs and retired colonels and generals. Mm-hmm. It's the it's a final disturbing an interesting interesting and disturbing um, coalescing of academic and military because you know a lot of people don't think of that that of course you need um, there's somewhere where the instruction comes from so there's a certain pedagogy or you know and and uh, in the in the universities I guess it was bottom up uh, with these professors coming up but it took it took a little while for them to seize enough bureaucratic power within the government to seed their people on top I guess that's what we're seeing here. Yeah, yeah, because, because it doesn't seem like organically in those academies there would be 
uh, who, is it former military that would generally be the professors? Oh, and a lot of civilians who okay. are, say they're strategists or historians right. or whatever. And and it was pretty much a middle-of-the-road faculty. And it was surprising even years ago to see how many liberal members of the faculty there were. But they were the old-style liberals who still thought, you know, believed in an American ideal and American founding principles and Western values. They just had liberal ideas for how to solve social problems. Now it's much different. So like right after 9-11, you had universities and academic institutions refusing to help the military and even discrediting scholars from their organizations if they worked with the military. Now you have quite the opposite. So you remember they were before kicking ROTC off campus. Now they're kind of happy to have them there because it's now teaching a new line. Well, there was a vital program uh, to, uh, to, to go against the terrorists, especially in Afghanistan, called the Human Terrain Program, and they needed anthropologists. And the American Anthropological, whatever it was, some professional academic organization said it would get rid of any member who dared collaborate with the military. So we had a shortage right after 9-11 of, of scholars who would go after help us learn the mindsets of the populations we were working with and the and the forces we were working against. Now you don't have that because it's all melded into the same mishmash of wokeness. Kind of like the overall multiculturalism ethic is sort of like the idea, the general idea of other cultures and and uh, tolerance and this sort of thing. But when it comes down to the brass tacks, actually they don't they don't know anything about the particular cultures, and that would go to that. That's not even the goal, or that's not even really on the radar screen. So I mean, it's not a hot take to say that all these woke ideas have infiltrated the Ivy Leagues and quote-unquote regular colleges out there. Why are people not reacting or why aren't they mad that Jen Psaki is saying basically the quiet part out loud that unless you agree with us, you're not going to be teaching at these institutions? And I mean, we can agree that, yeah, white supremacism is bad and all this and that. But when it comes to our military and people that are going to be fighting these wars for us, why is that even relevant? I just don't understand how these generals can get up there and say this stuff and people don't question them or push back at all on the stuff that they're saying. Yeah, I mean, China and Russian media... That's what I was going to say. China and yeah. Russia, I guarantee they're not teaching this. No, they, they are mocking what we do. What We took a 60-day pause after January 6th um, to to evaluate radical whatever they... extremism in the military. They're not doing that. They are... And we still have like every FBI field office is still working on... January 6th stuff to this day, probably. Well, and the, and the Capitol Police are being expanded to right. other cities as well. But, they, but I mean, people are overwhelmed. Look at what right. Biden promised to govern as a moderate. It was going to be a return to normalcy. Right just now, we had this disaster in Afghanistan, this unprecedented vaccine order that's probably not constitutional. Um, they're trying to ram through a $3 trillion tax hike and have spent like what six trillion i mean there have been three huge legislative packages that were really unnecessary and have gone under the guise of covid relief but are not are basically just welfare i mean the biggest expansion of the welfare state since lbj i think is one way it's been put so it's completely overwhelming. You can't react to all of it equally, which is kind of the point of why they are doing it this way. I'm sure Mike remember what's the name of the Alinskyite tactic with that overwhelming? Maybe there's not a specific name. It was Howard and Piven. It was to oh. overwhelm the welfare state so it collapses. All right. No, I just mean the information overwhelm. Uh, 
what you're describing, the rapid fire of all these different issues. There's right, something yeah. that Alinsky, he just said, keep moving the target, basically. And, and just wear people down because right. they can't follow it. It's like watching, you know, 20 sports programs at the same time and trying to focus on each one. It becomes, it becomes numbing. Even one can become numbing, let alone... Look at our work at the Center for Security Policy. There's no way we can focus on all of these things, and this is all we do. So think of it, you know, throughout throughout our system. And then we're not even talking about the FBI and the CIA and the Department of Homeland Security and the IRS and all of these other places right. where you have the same wokeness. You've got now a huge expansion of the IRS, and they're hiring completely incompetent people to fill these jobs because there aren't enough real accountants and forensic analysts and so forth to hire. So it is simply a jobs program. They put nincompoops in these places who are then going around auditing people and making life miserable for them when they literally don't know what they're doing. So so the, the taxpayer then has to hire a lawyer and an accountant just to fight this, will often win the case, but there's no recourse beyond that. Same with the, the, uh, the centralization of law enforcement and domestic intelligence collection powers. I mean, Adam, you just said the Capitol Police, right. but they're putting in $2 billion into a force of 2,000 policemen? Mm-hmm. Really? To with, federalize it? With mm-hmm. offices outside of D.C.? It makes no sense. But I think on it is overwhelming. It's designed to overwhelm people and make you feel like there's no way to fight against it. But I have been encouraged by the school board fights over CRT because I think you know you exercise influence where you can and that will make a difference in those it's the magic of federalism yeah yeah and it's been said before the the focus not only local but the states and and that's what we see with the with the um uh with the vaccine mandates it's just just not going to happen in the red states it's just not (laughs) because the because the citizens won't allow it and the governors the strong governors won't allow at least in probably almost half I think what is it, 18 or so states have declared, governors have declared they're not going to, they're going to challenge it. So, And a bunch of companies, specifically the Daily Wire is one of the most prominent ones that have come out and said that they're not going to let this happen. So. Yeah, it's the don't try, come come over here and take it yeah. type of attitude. But also, but, just one, one last thing on that. Where do they, this is going off track, but where do they get the 100 employee number from? It's a nice round number. Is is COVID smart enough where if you have 99 people, (laughs) you're going to be fine? But then, oh, if you hire this one intern, then you're all going to die. I just don't understand the rationale. Well, that's been stated too is that companies can, well, they'll just have 99 employees and then incorporate some other weird, you know, set up an adjunct thing. Or they'll fire people. So, oh, that too, right? Yeah. And you'll get fined $14,000 for every person that doesn't comply with it. So you'll either be having companies fire people or you're going to bankrupt those companies if they do pay these fines and there's no way to enforce that so it's just they would make an example well, of an unlucky there view. there are ways to enforce that with a totalitarian sure. uh a bureaucracy that goes and visits every uh, uh place but and that's not i mean it you know that sounds insane and then everything a lot of things sounded <laughs> insane two years ago you know yeah but so. if you look at it though it's also this this clash of views between it does the government serve the citizen or does the citizen serve the government and as, as Churchill and others warned, in any bureaucracy, the civil servant will no longer be civil and no longer be a servant at some point if they get too much power. It's part of human nature everywhere. So once you get these huge bureaucracies with colossal powers, plus investigative powers and enforcement powers all rolled into one, uh, they stop seeing themselves as serving the public and 
viewing the public as serving them, and then they'll kind of rationalize it. We are going to help you because we're from the government. We know better. And could you think of, I mean, they look at people as like almost cattle, you know, like a farmer would look at cattle like, well, you got to do X, Y, or Z because we need this from you, basically. But is there any better example of that than Fauci, who mm. thinks he knows everything, has been wrong on every level, is there's a lot of evidence covering up funding gain of function research and maybe helped be responsible for this pandemic at Wuhan. Yeah. And yet he, he never came clean on that from the beginning. No, he lied to Congress, which yeah. is a felony with punishable up to five years in prison. Probably won't happen. Well, he said he didn't lie even, and he told Rand Paul that he was, didn't know what he was talking about. So <laughs> he's the highest paid government employee and yeah. is still on TV. And, yeah. and that's the thing. Jim Acosta didn't even ask him about this. The day it came out, the, the latest, tranche of documents came out yeah. he wasn't even asked and because, it didn't exist yeah it just it didn't exist. yeah and this is where you get the sort of the media complex here media industrial political complex where they they will cover up for their sources so so fauci feeds the media you know great does great favors to a lot of these you know i don't know if it's jim acosta but the jim acostas of the world at cnn so if you're a journalist, you're going to leave these guys alone and you're going to cover up for them and you're going to want to please them because you get better inside stuff to report, to make a name for yourself or just, just to simply do your job as a journalist. So they're covering up for this guy and and not holding him accountable, plus the ideological bent of mainstream journalism. So, so Matt, you mentioned Daily Wire. That has a very different point of view from CNN and Jim Acosta that's doing what it thinks is right, but it's... It's the rarity. But it's not just getting that access and that source, like Fauci's the source when we get a, a, a main line. It's like, it's a total uh, ecosystem where the, the two, the media and the bureaucrat, um, shoot information in both directions. It's been pointed out there were Fauci's opinions, opinion, not even judgments, yes, opinions change when the media, uh, uh, you know, people used to make fun of President Trump that he'd watch Fox News and then that would give him his talking point or something like that. But literally, Fauci, who's supposed to be a scientist, it, it's sort of like you'll see CNN will say something and then the next day Fauci will change it on masks or whatever, right. you know. So he's he's totally political, bureaucratic. I mean, yeah, he's the epitome of this yeah. state that we're talking about. Imagine had he said in the beginning, hey, I'm very familiar with the Wuhan lab. I actually was involved in funding some research projects there because it was an international effort. Uh, we, either we made a mistake or, hey, I know that lab. Let's get to the bottom of this. And I know these scientists personally. And he never said any of that because you can offer the benefit of your experience either as a mistake or as something positive you did where you have inside knowledge. He went and just covered it up. Yeah. And I wonder how many of the scientists that he worked with in particular are dead now because they mm. knew too much. Sure. And it's been 18 months and anyone that could have implicated the Chinese government's not going to be around. Yeah, and he never spoke out for them, did no, he? No, he didn't. Even though their names yeah. were known. Yeah. You know, that, that, but that, that bureaucratic mindset of, of Fauci and a lot of our people, it, it, it's so uh, similar to the Chinese <laughs> Communist Party mindset, which is that, pe like we're saying, pe people are cogs. You know what I mean? There's a yeah. bigger goal that we're working towards. And yeah, you know, I mean, uh, we're not going to, this information is not going to get out. And if you, people have to die, then that's, you know, just a few. I mean, it's the fundamental difference of people of the social contract, which is everyone has rights. You temporarily give them to the government, but they're inherently in an, every individual versus collectivism right so speaking of china um this past saturday on september 11th japan and vietnam signed this new 
defense transfer deal that basically says that Japan can now give some of their defense equipment and technology to Vietnam. And all this, of course, just comes from essentially fear of the increased power of the Chinese military, which we've noted as the U.S. crumbles internally. China is taking note of this and they're ramping up their military greatly. Just a couple weeks ago, they had all those um, missile silos that popped up and that probably also is a reason that Japan and Vietnam got this deal signed. I mean, to some degree, the uh, uh, these peripheral states to China have been coordinating, uh, whether under the the rubric of the Quad, which includes the U.S., Japan, Australia, and India, um, and other ad hoc alliances and other relationships with the United States. I think the difference here, or the change, is is our performance in Afghanistan and our weakness under uh, Joe Biden in general. Uh, so yeah, this is an important pact that they're signing. It involves uh, transfers of equipment as well as uh, coordinated naval exercises. Uh, Kamala Harris was in Vietnam, I think it was last month or a few weeks ago, really just with a lot of empty rhetoric that she read off a, a, a paper. And and speaking of Af- Afghanistan, a lot of people thought it was kind of like uh, a distraction because the, the withdrawal was happening uh, at the time. When it comes down to what what can the U.S. offer at this point, except for words, you know, uh, which are not worth anything anymore. Um, um, and countries, you know, Vietnam has a, a long history of being invaded and conquered and having several wars with China over the past century or two. And uh, they're they're serious about this because they're right on China's doorstep. And and Japan, of course, you know, the most recent example, of Japan being the aggressor, but Japan is close to China and very affected by by China's power. In fact, Japan um, uh, last month also said openly uh, for the first time, marking a change in policy or at least rhetoric, uh, that they would defend Taiwan uh, militarily if if they were invaded by China. Uh, so that's a big difference. And, and it's also apparent that China takes Japan seriously because when Japan did that or said that, uh, China said, uh, quote, we will use nuclear bombs first. We will use nuclear bombs continuously. We will do so until Japan declares unconditional surrender for the second time. So that's pretty serious rhetoric, even for China. It's inter- Mike and I have had this debate a lot about NATO where this is good. We want our allies to be serious about their own defense because like NATO is basically worthless to us. At least the Europeans are. They have relied on U.S. strength, um, which is not good. We want allies that are helpful. And the ally we've screwed over the most over our history is Israel. And they don't ask for much. I mean, we give them assistance in some ways, but they are an actual asset to us because they don't simply rely on us to take care of everything. That being said, though, so in some ways this is a good thing, but it's even though it is the result of U.S. perceived weakness, well, actual weakness, but the Saudi the Saudis just signed a deal with the Russians for a defense system because the U.S. won't give them one. Mm. So if it is just strictly about their own self-protection, they're going to go where the, the they can find it. And so if the U.S. continues to be more and more irrelevant, don't you think, are they just going to cave to China, basically? I, I say no. I think this is, well, every situation is different. I think this is different because... Um, um, 
Japan has a particular reticence to have uh, a a big military, or in fact, it's written into their constitution that needs to be a self defense force. Obviously, because of the fact that they conquered all their surrounding <laughs> Asian Which neighbors. I think, yeah, I think uh, no. we, we insisted on that. Oh yeah, of yeah. course, and we, we should. We beat and we, it into them, yeah. and we should have. But uh, but but the situation's evolving now. It's different, and and and, uh, and Japan is like is the instrumental can be the instrumental power because of their in that region because of their economy and their ability and their genius and they could build a lot of uh, good and interesting weapons uh and of course they can build nuclear weapons without us and and that would be that would be really destabilizing if our nuclear umbrella loses its credibility but um uh, but no, if, if it if it hits a certain medium where, like you're saying, like NATO, we they're a little bit scared, but they still, you know, trust us uh, to some degree, and they can be counted on to help with Taiwan. I mean, yeah, it's it's dicey, and and of course we don't want to be weak, but but I guess it's just a natural evolution of things because not only is it our weakness, but with Japan in particular, it's about their maturity or their next evolution as a country well and also china is much more aggressive towards taiwan and towards yeah. other countries in recent years regardless of the united states yeah. so would they have done this do you think if it weren't for um biden being president and just the overall weakness i think it was moving that way regardless and also it just even if we had a more assertive posture china just the, the balance is changing just because China is building so many ships and, and uh, abilities and... Uh, and nuclear and, missiles. And, and a lot of nuclear silos. We don't know. Uh, and most people on our side of the ledger think those are full and they're going to be full of nuclear weapons. It's, it's, un, it's hard to know how many nuclear weapons, but yes. And that's very scary when, when, and when they reach parity. Um, that'll take a huge arrow out of our quiver. Um, oh, not only parity. Their missiles are brand new with the highest right. technology. Right. Our missiles are 50 years old with right. with ancient technology on them. They still yeah. work. but More they, than double your age, Matt. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because I, yeah. I think Dr. Peter probably wrote a piece a couple weeks or a month or so back when all these silos popped up, and the gist of what he was saying was basically these silos are super expensive. They're not just going to build them for show and not have weapons or be in the process of making weapons that they're eventually going to be able to launch from these. Yeah. And, bluff. and they just also see an opening because like, like Meg saying, you know, our, our nuclear deterrent is so questionable or yeah. So old. And in other ways, are we actually willing to use it? And yeah, that's the ultimate power. And for, for a long time, it uh, suited them and it, and it was the right strategic decision for them to be, I'm going to forget exactly what they called it, but it was like an ambivalent. It, they just kept the absolute minimum uh, needed for deterrent, the minimum amount of uh, weapons, uh, like 100 or 200, something like that. Um, but now, as things are shaking out, there's not much of a drawback for them to accelerate, especially when it's mostly in secret. Um, I think they knew, or th there was no way to hide all these silos, but... but um, um, they're also they're still keeping some ambiguity, so it's relatively in secret. And then one morning we'll wake up and oh, they have five thousand nuclear weapons. <laughs> right, and then we don't have a deterrence force. Our right. our deterrence force is built for the Cold War, with right. just now Russia as the main set of targets, and then some other targets here and there around the world. We are no, in no way prepared for what the Chinese are doing with their missile force. because And we don't have a missile defense. Remember, it was Joe Biden in the Senate who was among the leaders going back to the 1980s fighting the U.S. missile defense development from the very beginning. And right. he's still against it today. Right. And 
like we're can't we're having to take missiles out of museums to take parts mm. to make our current stuff functional mm. but um mike i want to give you the chance to answer so is this an unintended or a blessing in disguise that our weakness is encouraging our allies to be serious about their own defense it's a blessing in disguise because uh, for Japan to become assertive is very important to us. It's mm -hmm. going to take a lot of pressure off us. At the same time, we made Japan that way after World War II. We, there was a very, it was a country with an ancient martial history of the samurai, and, and we broke that. And so they have their self-defense force, but Japan is not configured to be an expeditionary force or to project power the way we would now like them to do. So it's remarkable that, that they are just recently started doing uh, joint uh, fighter aircraft operations with South Korea, which the two countries barely talk to each other militarily, you know, ever since World War II. That's a big deal. Uh, the fact that Japan is uh, working with Vietnam is a really big deal, and that these countries are looking toward Japan is a really big deal. What it does, though, is that it, it creates a more multipolar world where we lose a lot of our own sovereignty in the ability to direct what our previously sort of subordinate military allies and partners uh, were doing under our leadership. Now that we've lost that leadership, we've given it away. It's complicating things for us and will continue to do so. But just imagine, though, that part of the world where, say, India had been in the Russian orbit for so many years, and finally President Trump brought India out in a partnership against China. And now, you know, where, where's India going to go for support now? It has no choice but to go back to Russia. Just the way the Saudis, which had never had relations with Russia, they started leaning toward Russia under Obama. And they started having a military dialogue with the Russians under Obama. Trump cut that out, but now the Saudis are going back to buy these defense systems from Russia, which is new. But even if it is a more of a multipolar world, isn't that good? Because the United States being the world's police and the and ensuring freedom of navigation for everybody has been at great cost to us for I don't see... I mean, there have been benefits, but it's allowed all of our allies to get fat and lazy and resentful of American power. So why bother, is my question, defending people that hate us anyway? That's a great question. I mean, sometimes you have to get over whether somebody likes us or hates us because it's still in our interest. But really, but wh is why is it interest? in our interest to be defending communist China's Middle East oil supplies right. and then keeping these sea lanes of communication open for the communist Chinese merchant marine, which is part of the Chinese Navy, to deliver oil from Iraq to communist China to be used against us. Or to, for that matter, hand over Afghanistan's trillions of dollars of rare earth minerals and lithium and, and, and other priceless uh, valuables for the for the, for the electronic vehicles and uh, and new generations of computing Get, we fight and win this in afghanistan this territory and we hand it over to the enemy including communist china after all the sacrifices we made so we we've surrendered our own sovereignty so we really this means that putin's going to have to look a lot more after his own interests more than he was because there was a sort of a putin was was enabling us in afghanistan because we were running so much of our supplies by land from the port of Riga, Latvia, hmm. through Russia, down through Central Asia to Afghanistan. So, so it was in Russia's interest to help us to fight against 
the Taliban and Al Qaeda. Uh, what we're doing now is we're going to empower these countries to do things on their own rather than under our guidance and leadership. I think the answer why we spent blood and treasure of keeping the oil flowing and the lanes open is that it's it was part of a phase that's hopefully over now with maybe the withdrawal of Afghanistan is the period on it where we felt that you know the whole idea of the liberal international order or the idea that globalist capitalism was a benefit to us so in a, so in a way that expenditure was a benefit to us you know to keep uh whereas now you know hopefully it'll it'll be more based on our interests and and um like, like you wouldn't be proposing uh, to go if we didn't have the Taliban or al-Qaeda question to go into Afghanistan for those resources i mean that's also not worth it to us right but we should have kept so, them once we were already in. If we're going to send expeditionary forces to not just kill off our enemies, but to actually rebuild a country, right. we're entitled to buy up those mineral Right, rights. and we just that's want to not steal. That's you know, the key word, though, is buy, because originally it was Iraq, we went to Iraq for the oil. It's not like we took the oil and stole it. The Chinese right. will, or they'll, they'll, they're not going to care to pay for the minerals or to make it safe or, or give any benefit to the Afghanistan I think it People. has to be a medium, though, from our end, because I've read and not delve deep into any case studies, but it seems in Latin America and in Africa, you know, we hear about China building this infrastructure and extracting the, the, the resources and whatnot, but they are rubbing a lot of people the wrong way in those countries. You know, it still matters. You know, we, we had a lot of good PR, by the way we acted. We had some bad PR as well, but generally speaking, the United States has a light touch and, a, and wants to benefit the the local people but right china comes in brings all chinese workers like there's no benefit really to the country most right. of the time well it's the benefits of the rulers right they, right. they get yeah subsidized right. and, and that's it one of the positive results of this atrocity in afghanistan is that it has so shocked the american public and even the washington establishment and even a lot of joe biden's allies even a lot of people in the State Department and in the Pentagon, it has shocked them to see just how messed up our decision makers really are. And it has prompted people, not just in the United States, but around the world, to run private sector operations to rescue people out of Afghanistan the way the United States did not or could not or would not. So it has energized a lot of private sector work to do what people presumed the U.S. government would do. I think the more we're able to energize private initiative like that and use that as a foundation on which to build something new is really promising. If we can decrease the power of the centralized super state and increase the power of private talent and logistics and intelligence and everything else, it can be used for the cause of good and for American sovereignty. Thank you for listening to today's show. Not Cleared is a project of the Center for Security Policy. We want to hear from you, so please email us at questions at notcleared.org so we can get in touch with you.